Um, well, it's a pl pleasure to welcome um, you all here for this talk on Britain and the Palestine Mandate. And um, this is going to be the first of two special events that the LSE International History Department are organising this week, um, both with visiting speakers passing through London, who we're very pleased to have with us, um, and both dealing with events that happened approximately 60 years ago. So if I can just mention the other event, which is tomorrow evening, uh, when Professor Hans-Ulrich Wehler will be speaking about 60 years of the German Federal Republic. Um, that will be a cost-benefit analysis of 60 years of the German Federal Republic uh, by Hans-Ulrich Wehler, who's a very distinguished um, German professor, um, who also has very good English and is very good controversialist. Um, but that talk will be tomorrow, and that will be in the new academic building, NAB 104, at 5 p.m., I'm currently chair of the International History Department. My name is Professor David Stevenson. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome tonight um, Professor Norman Rose, um, who is um, actually an ex-alumnus of the department. Um, he did his PhD at the LSE back in the 1970s, um, and then moved to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, um, where he is now a chair of international relations at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So speaking, therefore, tonight from a Middle East vantage point, and he's published a very large number of books which um, establish him, I think, as a, as a leading expert in the field of international history in the 20th century, and particularly the international history of two things, one of the Zionist movement and the other thing of British policy. Um, so among other things, he's done biographies of Winston Churchill, of Harold Nicholson, of Robert Van Sittert, a number of leading former figures informing British foreign policy in the 20th century, um, he's also worked on the Cliveden set um, in the 1930s, and on the Zionist side, he's worked on Chaim Weizmann, who's produced a major biography of Chaim Weizmann. Um, so much of his background, I think, leads towards the topic that he's produced his most recent book on, and if I can do a quick sales pitch for the book, um, there are copies of this on sale outside. This has just come out, so it's hot from the press. It's called A Senseless Squalid War, Voices from Palestine, 1945 to 1948. And this is the first major new study for several years um, of the war of the 1940, of the origins of the State of Israel and the war that led to that, again, about 60 years ago this year. And um, I've read the book with pleasure, with, with great enjoyment. I've looked at it in proof. And it's, first of all, it's extremely accessible. Um, it's a very fluent and readable narrative of events. Um, but containing with it, of course, a lot of judgments and comments on the highly controversial episodes that mark this period. Um, it puts it in longer-term perspective, going back to the origins of the Zionist movement um, and British imperialism in the Middle East in the 19th century, and comes through to the 45 to 48 period in the final chapters. It includes a lot of new research from British archival sources, and a lot of that very tellingly displayed, I think, in the book to bring out the distinctive attitudes in the period by all the three parties in the conflict, the British, um, the Jews, and the Arabs, uh, are, are all brought out and discussed in the book. And another strong feature of it is that it's very good on the international aspect of the conflict, the diplomacy at the United Nations that led to the key resolution um, which led on to the creation of the State of Israel and the war of 1948 to 49. So these are all themes that appear in the book, and um, this is a moment when British policy was still very important in the Middle East, and it had repercussions which obviously continue down to the present day, and it's in that I hope to provide some kind of longer-term historical perspective um, that we're very pleased to have Norman Rose here tonight, and he's going to speak um, for about 45 to 50 minutes, 
and then there'll be plenty of time for <coughs> questions and answer and for discussion afterwards. We'll be looking to finish about 8 p.m. So, Norman Rose. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone, and David, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. Um, before I actually start, I'd like to make absolutely clear the uh, origins of the main title of this book. It comes from, it's a quote from a speech made by Winston Churchill in the House of Commons on the 12th of March 1947. And he told the House as follows. 80 million pounds since the socialist government came into power squandered in Palestine. And 100,000 Englishmen now kept from their homes and work for the sake of a senseless squalid war with the Jews in order to give Palestine to the Arabs or God knows who. And you have to remember Churchill was then in opposition and could really express himself as freely as possible. I try and put that quotation in its context uh, when I come to it um, in the immediate post-war period. Um, this is really a story of how the British became interested in Palestine, how they became involved in Palestine, the end of the Second First World War, and how they became involved with two nationalist movements which they barely understood and which greatly complicated their lives. And in the end resulted in a most humiliating retreat in imperial terms for the British government. Well, quite obviously, the first interest that any British government showed towards Palestine, towards that particular area, uh, occurred during Napoleon's adventure in Egypt at the end of the 18th century. And here we see active British intervention in order to thwart any dominant French presence in the area. Uh, remember Nelson's great Battle of the Nile and a bit later on the British intervened actively at uh, Acorn in order to stop the French from advancing on Constantinople. Well now the, the, the initial British interest and I think that remained right up until the end here we have two factors that really remain constant um, until at least uh, the end of the Second World War, of the First World War the early 1920s. First of all is the threat of the French. More than anything else, the British were concerned that the French should not inherit any area, any interest in the, in the Near East that was detrimental to British interests. And the main interest of the British, or main interest of the British at the time, centered on the Suez Canal, Suez Canal area. There was no Suez Canal, of course, at the end of the 18th century. But the British still used to use uh, land transports from Port Said down south through the Red Sea and up towards India. And the other route which greatly interested them was from Haifa, Akkor, across the Syrian desert, up to the great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, down towards the Persian Gulf and into India. So the secret here was India, India and the Far East. This was the British Empire. And it was necessary to secure these two focal points in order to secure the security and the prosperity of the British Empire and obviously 
of the mother country in the long run. In the middle of the 19th century, during what were known as the great Syrian crisis of the 1830s, we find that the British, and this is an extraordinary event, the British establish a British consulate in Jerusalem, 1838. Why? First of all, to counter other great power interests, the French responsible for Catholic interests in the Ottoman Empire, the Russians responsible for Orthodox, Greek and Russian Orthodox interests in the empire. And now the British come in with a consulate which has very clear terms of reference. First of all, to protect Anglicans, Protestants within the Ottoman Empire, but also Jews. And this is almost without precedent. There weren't many Jews living within the Ottoman Empire. But wherever they were, state, wherever they were based, mainly in Jerusalem or in the holy cities, Safad, uh, Hebron, um, they were subject, of course, to Ottoman rule. And the British now appear in the middle of the 19th century as their protectors. And I want to say here this is part of a very, very long tradition of what I've termed elsewhere as Gentile Zionism. That is the, the, uh, the interest that Gentile politicians in England showed towards the future of the Jews. Now we can trace this from the Puritan Revolution the mid 17th century. We have pamphlets that are pleading for the return, the millennium. And this kind of tradition stretches on into the 19th century. We have the consulate in Jerusalem. We have uh, leading politicians like Lord Shaftesbury or Lord Palmerston who are also amenable to the idea of Gentile Zionism. And this stretches further, and this is extremely important for our story, into the 20th century when we find Leading British politicians, Balfour, Lloyd George, Milner, Smuts, people who were very active during the First World War, who were convinced Gentile Zionists and that the Jews had a right to return to Palestine in order to create some kind of national existence. I'll come back to this later on. In Palestine itself, we see the first... Jewish immigrations in the 1880s and the 1890s up until the period of the First World War. Mainly as a result of uh, persecutions in Eastern Europe, the Russian Empire, Pale of Settlement, where the majority of Jews were living in very abysmal circumstances. And through a series of pogroms in the, late 18, in the early 1880s, uh, Jews, some of them, not all of them, decided to leave and to try and start a new life in Palestine. I have to say that the overwhelming majority, this was a great Jewish migration. The overwhelming majority moved westwards into Western Europe, France, England, but further west, across the Atlantic, into the United States. In the immediate period before the First World War, we have the first Zionist-oriented Jewish immigrants. We call it the second wave of immigration. They were socialists, convinced socialists, Marxists. And the name which I'm sure you're all familiar, Ben Gurion, was amongst these early pioneers who came to Palestine 
uh, in the early 1900s. Now, how did the Arab population react? Very hostile. They were not happy at what they considered to be excessive Jewish ambitions in Palestine at the time. And we know that they sent petitions to Constantinople, which was the focus of the Ottoman administration, in which they said they laid down two conditions. No more Jewish immigration into Palestine. No more land sales to Jews. Now, I mentioned these two conditions because we can see them right the way through the mandatory period. These were two kind of foundation stones of Arab complaints against the Ottoman Empire, first of all, and against the British mandatory administration. So we can detect Arab hostility, Palestinian Arab hostility, towards Jewish encroachment into Palestine, even before the First World War. But what did the Arabs actually want? They themselves didn't know. There was no question at the time of an independent Palestinian nationalist movement. It didn't exist. They veered between two options. Either as part of the Ottoman Empire, they didn't envisage that the Ottoman Empire would eventually disintegrate, or as part of a greater Arab state that would include Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, what we now call Iraq, and so forth and so on. Well, as in so much of 20th century history, the First World War changed everything. In the sense that the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, uh, decided to throw in its lot with the Central Powers, Germany and uh, Austro-Hungary. And this, for the British, changed the picture completely. Because before the First World War, British policy towards the Ottoman Empire was one of retaining it, of keeping, keeping it intact, not out of any love for the Turks, but because they considered the other alternative, partition, to be too demanding. It meant negotiations with the French and the Russians and the Italians. And this was simply too complicated an issue to grapple with so we'll settle for the status quo. But the moment Turkey joined the Central Powers, the situation changed dramatically. And we have a very famous speech by uh, Asquith, Prime Minister at the time, at the Guild Hall, in which he pronounces the death knell of the Ottoman Empire. Now, how did this express itself in British policy? We know that at the beginning of 1915, February, the British government set up an interdepartmental committee, it was called the Debunson Committee, which laid out British interests in the Near East. In the event of Britain winning the war, and it wasn't at all certain that she would win the war in 1915, but in the event of Britain winning the war, how do we see the Middle East in terms of British interests? And again, we come back to the same two, if I can use this thing, which I'm not very competent at. Uh, the British interest anchored on two points, the Suez Canal, which of course was now open, and the Persian Gulf. And what they had to make clear was the British interest would be consistent from the, from the Suez Canal right through what is now Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, 
and down to the Persian Gulf. Keep the French as far away as possible from these areas. Now, how did Palestine fit into this? It's specifically mentioned in the Davanson Committee, in the Davanson Report, that Palestine, owing to the interests of the great powers and the importance of the holy places, we have to institute an international regime for Palestine. And we can't exactly see it on, on the map because it's a bit small. But if you know the area, the area of Palestine at the time, as it was envisaged in the Davanson Report, stretched roughly north of, of Haifa, Haifa Bay, down to the town called Beersheba, which is in the top of the Israeli Negev, from the eastern Mediterranean seaboard to the Jordan. This area was envisaged as an area, once we've won the war, was coming under international control. And I think the Debunson Report actually is vital to understanding British policy in the Near East during the First World War and as it was expressed after the war. Now the second round of negotiations concerned um, the Arabs. The Arab nationalist movement was led by a man called Sheikh Hussein from Saudi Arabia, descendant of Muhammad. He was the titular head, but in fact the negotiations were conducted by his two sons, uh, Faisal and Abdullah. And this, uh, these negotiations took the form of an exchange of letters between Hussein and the British representative in Egypt, a man called Sir Henry McMahon. But what did the Arabs demand? What did they ask for? Because the British were trying to get them involved in the war against Turkey. They eventually did, you remember, Lawrence of Arabia. The Arabs asked for a greater Arab state, which would envision Saudi Arabia, you go up to the Persian Gulf, Iraq, Syria, down the eastern, down the Mediterranean seaboard, Sinai, and the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. How did the British react? I mean, this was a, a very kind of generous uh, demand. Well, the British reacted in a very, uh, I wouldn't say in an offhand way, but they weren't entirely pleased with the idea. They said, okay, a greater Arab said, okay, we accept it in principle, but, but, we have to take into account the interests of our allies, France and Russia. They have specific interests in, the, in, the near, in this area. And we cannot come to any long-term agreement without taking their interests into account. And those interests, of course, also centered on Palestine. So this was a kind of standoff. There was no actual, some historians refer to it as a pact. It wasn't a pact. It wasn't even an agreement. It was a difference of opinion. And uh, in spite of this, in the summer of 1916, as we know, uh, Hussein or Faisal, his son, uh, launched uh, a war uh, against the Turks, and they fought on the um, other side of the Jordan. That's, again, Lawrence of Arabia, and so forth and so on. 
Next we come to negotiations between the great powers, Britain, France and Russia. How did they envisage the carve-up of the Middle East? And here we come to the famous or infamous, depends how you define it, uh, a pact or an agreement known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Sykes, the British uh, representative, because the, the French, the Russians were involved, but of course after the revolution they backed out. And the Sykes-Picot Agreement is very, very explicit. It says, again, I'm generalizing, but this is the essence of it. The area we now call Lebanon and Syria, French. French influence, spheres of influence. The area we know now as Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, they're British spheres of influence. They weren't sure how these areas were to be governed, but it was sure that they had to be taken under the control, under the auspices of these two great imperial powers. Palestine. Palestine, again, because of the holy places and the interests of the great powers, was referred to as an international regime. Here we see the link-up between de Bunsen and Sykes-Picot. And the last round of negotiations between the Zionist movement, British government, and that ended in the well-known Balfour Declaration of November 1917. And the Balfour Declaration went through at least five drafts before it was originally, before it was finally agreed upon by the British cabinet. And the difference between the first draft and the last draft is vital. First draft said, we will establish Palestine as the Jewish national home. And the last draft said, we will establish the Jewish national home in Palestine. There you have the first hint of partition. Of course, they didn't say that openly because, again, I, I, I emphasize November 1917, there was absolutely no certainty that the Allies would win the war certainly became apparent in the spring of 1918. There was no mention of a British commitment to administer Palestine in the Balfour Declaration. No mention of it. And here again, uh, Chaim Weizmann, the, the uh, Zionist leader, thought, ah, this is, this is really not good for us because it might bring about an international regime which we do not want because once you have all the great powers interested in one particular area, each one is pulling in different directions, and the Jewish national home will suffer. What Weizmann wanted was a British connection. He was an Anglophile, right from his very earliest years. And this coincided, this is, this is kind of one of the accidents of history, perhaps. Because Weizmann's ideas coincided with the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George. Lloyd George said, he came to office in uh, December 1916, when the British were on the verge of actually conquering Palestine. The army had advanced up to El Arish, which is a town uh, in northern Sinai. They were about to capture Rafa, Beersheba, eventually all of Palestine. And Lloyd George said, someone asked him, and what about Palestine? And he said, we must grab that. Because he too, like Weizmann, did not want an international regime. He wanted British control. Because only by controlling Palestine, Sinai, could he guarantee 
security with the Suez Canal, which of course was his great and foremost interest, and the Persian Gulf eventually. People often refer to uh, Britain as perfidious Albion, a kind of double-dealing great power that says many things to many people but really doesn't mean anything to any of them but has its own um, interests at heart. And of course great powers do pursue their own interests. But I think we can, at least I can, perceive a certain continuity in British policy during the First World War regarding the Middle East. I've called it flexible continuity because one must take into account that all diplomacy in a wartime situation is flexible. It reflects the wartime situation and this changes from month to month, perhaps from week to week. So one mustn't look for a rigid consistency. It simply doesn't exist and it didn't exist here. But one gets the idea that how the British regarded Palestine at the time was for it either to be an international regime, but the moment Lloyd George came into power, he was determined that Britain should retain control of Palestine. Now we have a very interesting conversation between Lloyd George and Clemenceau before the opening of the Paris Peace Conference the end of 1918. The conference opened at the beginning of 1919. We don't have any official documents, but we do have diary entrance by the secretaries, the cabinet, a man called Sir Maurice Hankey, who actually recorded what these two great leaders said to each other. And Lloyd George said, no, we must have Palestine. Clemens said, okay, take it. Lloyd George said, we must have Mosul, which is the oil-bearing area in uh, northern Iraq. Okay, take it. What did Clemenceau want? He wanted Lebanon and Syria. And he was prepared to bargain with Lloyd George in order to retain these particular... And this is how history is made. The British and the French went on to consolidate these ideas at a conference held in San Remo in the spring of 1920. And the mandates, for, we're now talking about mandates, the League of Nations, these were A-class mandates. The mandates of Lebanon and Syria went to France, as agreed upon, to of Palestine, which included Transjordan at the time, and Iraq to Britain. Again, look back towards the de Bunsen report and see the kind of continuity here. Well, Weissman was pleased you know, the Zionists were pleased at this, that Britain was now the mandatory power for Palestine. What about the Arabs? The Arabs suffered. Because Faisal, in the spring of 1920, proclaimed the greater Arab state, which included Palestine. And this went directly contravened the decisions of the San Remo conference. And the French said, no, you can't, we can't have that because that goes against our interests. And the British said, okay. They gave the French the green light. The French army landed at Beirut, marched on Damascus, expelled Faisal, 
and instituted the French mandates for Syria and Lebanon. Faisal eventually was compensated by the British who took him out of Damascus and moved him to Baghdad and there founded the Hashemite uh, regime in Baghdad who actually kept uh, in existence until the uh, uh, Qassam revolution of 1958. That was kind of compensation. But this had a profound effect upon the Arab nationalist movement. If at one time you could just barely see a greater Arab nationalist movement, French action brought about a fragmentation of it. From now on we see a Palestinian nationalist movement, a Lebanese nationalist movement, a Syrian, and so forth and so on. In Palestine itself, 1919, 1920, 1921, we see the first congresses, the first um, meetings, conferences of Palestinian Arabs in order to express their own individual national identity. And the same demands held. No Jewish immigration, no land sales to Jews, abrogation of the Balfour Declaration. And in order to make their demands explicit, both upon the British government and the Zionists, a series of uh, riots broke out in 1920, 1921, which were put down by the British army. Many Jews were killed, also Arabs, some British. These riots eventually died down. But the writing was on the wall. Here you had a clash of two rival nationalist movements and the British trying to hold the ring. But now one of the developments, I think a major development in this was that the, the first High Commissioner of Palestine was a man called Sir Herbert Samuel, leading liberal politician, also Jewish, not religious. Uh, was viewed by the Arabs as a kind of conspiracy, kind of closet Zionist. He was sympathetic, but he was not a paid-up member of the Zionist movement. And Herbert Samuel, in order perhaps to prove his credentials, um, did a very, I think in the long run, very foolish thing. He brought back to Palestine a man called Hajamin al-Husseini, and made him the Mufti of Jerusalem. Hajamin had been expelled from Palestine because of his uh, involvement in the riots of 1920-1921. Herbert Samuel brought him back, made him Mufti of Jerusalem, and this was a post of great, not only religious significance, but also political significance. And Hajamin became, through very ruthless methods, and I think this is admitted by all historians of the period, whether they are Jewish, Arab, British or whatever, a very ruthless man, a rabid anti-Zionist, if not anti-Semitic, would brook no opposition, no interference with his domination of the Palestinian nationalist movement, which in effect lasted until 1947-1948. Well, during the 1920s, the Zionist movement appeared to be crumbling. The Jewish people didn't respond to Weizmann's call to come to Palestine, preferred America or whatever. And in 1927 more Jews left Palestine than came in. 
But this was only a kind of facade. Beneath the surface, the Jewish national home was taking place. And here we see a very important development that was to prove crucial in the post-war years. The Jewish agency, which was um, established in the early 1920s and, and uh, is included in the terms of the mandate, developed into what became known as a state within a state. If you examine, and we can today, of course, examine the protocols of the executive of the Jewish agency, we see Department of Education, Department of Health, Foreign Ministry. Uh, they had its own private army, it's called the Haganah, defense, self-defense, and so forth and so on. In other words, it mirrored uh, traditional governments. And these, these, were, these were active departments. So that when eventually we reached the stage of 1947-48 and the decision to establish a Jewish and a Palestinian state, we should come to that soon, the Jews were ready. They had virtually a shadow government intact from the mid-1920s onwards. We see no such development on the Arab side. The Arabs were offered by Herbert Samuel an Arab agency which was supposed to be the equivalent of the Jewish agency. And Hajamin, the Mufti's um, policy was that the moment we agree to anything with the British government that kind of undermines our position in Palestine, it means that we're giving in to the British government, that we accept the Balfour Declaration and so forth and so on. So, so no. The moment we start compromising, we lose everything. And I think you can see from the Mufti's point of view, and as I said, he dominated the Palestinian national movement until 1947-48, we can see an all-or-nothing attitude, kind of zero-sum game, as it's called. In 1929, August, there took place the most severe riots in Palestine. Um, many Jews were killed, many Arabs were killed, mainly by the British. And it indicated for Zionist leaders that coming to some kind of compromise uh, with the Palestinian Arab nationalist movement was extremely difficult, if not impossible. The amount of hostility, the degree of venom, the propaganda, made these things very, very difficult indeed, but not impossible, given the, the will to compromise. During the early 1930s, things again changed dramatically. Hitler comes to power in January 1933, and the rise in Jewish immigration as a result, was not only uh, anti-Semitism in Germany, but also Eastern Europe, particularly Romania. The amount of Jewish immigration into Palestine rose dramatically. 135,000 within three years, 1933 to 1935. Now, if that rate of immigration would have continued, that would have changed the demographic face of Palestine to the det detriment of the Arabs. And so we see a hardening of the Arab case at the end of 1935. 
The Arab High Committee is formed, the Mufti its head. Again, these three demands of the British government, no Jewish immigration, no land sales to Jews, abrogation of the Balfour Declaration. Now, the British government could not surrender to these demands. It felt it had not only, it felt it had a moral case as well. To adhere to the Balfour Declaration, the, the growth of the Jewish national home, and in particular, of course, with the growth of, anti-Semi- of, of, of kind of institutionalized anti-Semitism in Germany and Eastern Europe, and the wish of many Jews to come to Palestine in order to seek a new life, it felt it had to adhere strictly to these principles. Well, as a result of all this, what became known as the Arab Rebellion broke out in 1936 and lasted until the spring of 1939. And this was a half-coordinated attempt by Arab militias, first of all directed against the British government, who they considered to be, or they considered as the protectors of the Jewish national home, but of course also against Jewish settlements. So a kind of war broke out between the Arabs, the British on the one hand, and the Jews on the other. It led to a strengthening of the Jewish Defense Force, the Haganah. It led to attacks by Jewish dissident groups, the Irgun, and later on the Stern Gang, 1940s, against the Arabs. It led to some kind of cooperation between the British Army in Palestine and the Haganah, Ord Wingate, I'm not sure if the name is familiar with it, to you, was a very eccentric British officer who was a fervent Gentile Zionist, obsessively so. And he devised a scheme in order to bring in members of the Haganah who would fight together with British NCOs and officers in order to put down the Arab rebellion. This was very important for the future of the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli army. People like Moshe Dayan, who I'm sure you've all heard of, was a member of these special night squads. Well, this, these were kind of ad hoc military solutions. What about a political solution? British decided to send what was known as a, a royal commission to Palestine to investigate the causes of the rebellion and to propose some kind of solution, the Peel Commission. And it made its recommendations in July of 1937 and its main recommendation was revolutionary. It said the mandate was unworkable. That is the the mutual hostility between the Jews and the Arabs unbridgeable and the British were fighting a losing game therefore the only, solu- the only practical solution was partition we would partition Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state I have the, uh, the map of the Peel proposals in the book but now how did both sides react to this the leader of the Zionist movement Chaim Weizmann said 
they were not overjoyed because they also saw a kind of greater Israel in the future but we're now three years, two years away from the Second World War and Weizmann said in order to convince his movement <clears throat> it's better to take 50% of something than 100% of nothing so we will agree to partition in principle we do not accept the borders proposed we will negotiate with the British government in order to achieve more sustainable borders. The Arabs said, no, we don't accept partition. Accepting partition means that we give up our right as the indigenous population of Palestine to Palestine. There can be no compromise. Now, this is the Mufti. That's not to say that there weren't certain Arab leaders who were amenable to the idea in principle, just like Weizmann. There were. But they were too, dare I say, afraid to express their views in public because the Mufti was, as I said, a very ruthless politician. <clears throat> the idea of partition fell through in the immediate months leading up to the... to the... Uh, the Second World War because uh, the Foreign Office, the Chiefs of Staff said no, we cannot agree to partition because this would alienate the Arab world against the British Empire. Again, a war is expected not only against Germany, against Italy in the Mediterranean, the Japanese in the Far East. We cannot uh, cope with a three-front war by alienating all the Arab states, all the Arab countries, and of course you have to take into account India. Tens of millions of Muslims in India, which would undermine British rule there. So the British had to reevaluate their position with the approach of war. Now, I'll tell you a story, it's not a story, it's an actual fact. After the Anschluss, after the um, German occupation of Austria, um, the French and the British met in order to discuss you know, how are we going to react to German aggression and the French asked the British well now what are you prepared to give us in the event of a European war and the British said well we can give you two ill-equipped ill-manned divisions two now what the British were holding down in Palestine were two divisions in order to cope with the Arab rebellion you get this uneven balance for a, 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 war, a European war against Germany, a mighty power to ill-equipped and ill-manned divisions so it was obvious that with the approach of war the British had to reevaluate their forces they had to somehow retrench they had to somehow solve the Palestine problem in order to bring these divisions back into Europe to face the greater German threat And this is the main reason behind uh, what we've come to call the May White Paper of 1939, which was a government document that severely restricted the growth of the Jewish national home. Limited immigration to 75, maximum of 75,000 over five years, and then only to be continued with Arab consent, which obviously was not forthcoming. It limited Jewish land sales to an area of about 5% of Palestine 
So this was a, a document that the Zionists could not accept under any circumstances. But the, the peculiar thing is that the Arabs didn't accept it too under the Mufti. Because again, agreeing to an official government document would mean opening a kind of Pandora's box for them. Although there were certain Arab leaders, again, who were prepared to accept the May White Paper. But again, <coughs> afraid of their afraid of the consequences. Can't quite see what the time is here. Um, sorry, let me go into the Second World War. <clears throat> the Holocaust. In the Holocaust, when the first reports came out, people didn't believe it. This was in, say, the autumn of 1941 after the uh, German invasion of Russia. They simply couldn't you know, believe the story of mass killings that were taking place. But by the beginning of 1942, or the winter of 41-42, authenticated reports came out, reached Geneva, World Jewish Congress, were forwarded to the British government, the American government. It was fairly obvious that um, mass killings of Jews were taking place. The extermination camps had not yet been founded, but... Um, and this led, of course, to uh, a desire of uh, Jews who could uh, to get out of Europe and into Palestine, which was the only place they could go to, America, and impose quotas, what you know. And there was a very famous incident which involved a unseaworthy boat called the Struma that ended up in the Black Sea <clears throat> in the early spring of 1942, sailed into Constantinople with about 760 Jews on board, trying to seek certificates, entry into Palestine. And this was refused by the British government. The Turks didn't want the boat there because it was causing trouble. The boat was forced out back into the Black Sea, where it was torpedoed and sank, and all the people on board were killed except one survivor. We don't know exactly who fired the torpedo, either a Soviet boat or a German, not important. What is important is this had a, a traumatic effect on the Jewish national home and the Zionist movement. That they could rely only upon themselves in order to save the Jews. Churchill's in power, pro-Zionist, kind of Gentile Zionist. Now Churchill government, Churchill's government instituted or reconsidered the idea of partition and <clears throat> decided upon partition beginning of 1944 and this was relayed to the Zionist movement who were very happy again the possibility of a Jewish state and things worked out fairly well during 1944 except in November of 1944 a man called Lord Moyne who was the minister resident British minister resident 
in the Middle East was assassinated by two members of the Stern Gang. <coughs> Lord Moyne was a personal friend of, of uh, Churchill. A man called Walter Guinness of the Brewing family. And his assassination affected Churchill profoundly. He now began to speak. I think, because we know Churchill, you know, rhetoric was everything with him, and he, quite an emotional man, and, and he did react emotionally in the beginning, uh, talking of uh, Zionist gangsters, uh, assassinating his great friend, and so forth and so on. And he kind of distanced himself from the Zionist movement. And the idea of partition went into cold storage. Wasn't heard of again. And again, this is a kind of another turning point in the affairs of Palestine. When we come to the opening of the, the end of the Second World War, Churchill is not re-elected. We have a Labour government. How is the Labour government going to react to this problem of Palestine? Now, the Labour government, contrary to what many people think, was very sympathetic towards Zionism. Bevin, who has I don't know how to put this delicately, but his reputation in Zionist circles is a very bad one. But he was very active. He was very sympathetic towards Zionism in the 1930s. And the Labour government, as, the Labour Party as a whole, introduced a resolution at the end of 1944 at the Labour Party conference in which it was ultra-Zionist in content. It called for the transfer of Arabs out of Palestine. Something no Zionist has ever, would ever dream of making public in order to make room for the Jews. Seven months later, the Labour government came into power and initially the Zionists were very happy. Okay, this is good, you know, they're our friends. Well, the great question was, and again I put it in the book, I have a picture of uh, Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister, talking, uh, Bevin, the Foreign Secretary, talking to Clement Attlee. He says, Clem, my boys in the Foreign Office have told me a completely different story. And the big question was, would the Labour government revoke the May White Paper or not? And it didn't. It kept the White Paper policy on and this was foreign, foreign Office's policy, Chiefs of Staff. Again, we are now in the area, the, the period, the opening of the Cold War. And the position from Britain's point of view was very delicate. Because the first thing the Americans did when the war closed, when the war ended, was to move the American troops out of Europe, back to the States. And this brought Churchill's very famous cry. You know, who will defend the white cliffs of Dover from the white snows of Russia? Britain was left alone. France was helpless. The Russians were 150 miles from the Rhine. So again, they had to reconso reconsolidate. And not revoking the Mayright paper was one of the ways of doing it. Of course, the Jews could not accept this. And they formed what was known as the United Resistance Movement, which was a movement that coordinated the activities of the Haganah, the Irgun, which is the 
kind of Begin's uh, group and the Stern Gang, in order to convince, persuade, in inverted commas, the British government that they should reconsider their policy. Formation of the United Resistance Movement was a very important event in many ways. And, and it, it, it's interesting to see how the different actors in the Zionist movement reacted to this. Weizmann, for example, was totally against it. He didn't want any um, coordination with what he called dissident terrorist groups because he said that would take the Zionist movement as a whole. Let them go their own way. We have our own sense of values, our own moral code, and we have to keep to it. Ben Gurion felt differently in the beginning. And I have to say that the United Resistance Movement kept in existence six, seven months. And it collapsed as a result of the blowing up of the King David Hotel. Do you remember this incident? Over 90 people were killed, Jews, Arabs, and British, July 1946. Then it collapsed. Then each group went its own way. Haganah more involved in bringing in so-called illegal immigrants. The Agun and the Stern Gang more involved in what I call in the book, terrorist activities. <clears throat> the question was what was going to happen in the future and the British were now getting um, they now had to reevaluate their whole um, kind of global posture and the key here was India it had already been recognised I, I think since the, the mid 1930s that Britain would eventually have to evacuate India the, and the evacuation of India meant a reappraisal of Britain's imperial posture, including the Near East. The autumn, the big autumn 1946, we see the first talk of certainly India, to which the Labour government was committed, but also how it would affect the British position in Palestine. And in February of 1947, the British decided to take the Palestine issue to the United Nations. Now, in my opinion, this decision meant that the British were bent on evacuating Palestine. We now know that there, were, there was talk of a new strategic line to be drawn up in the Middle East, which would not take Palestine into account. It would stretch from Lagos in West Africa to Kenya in East Africa, and onto the Persian Gulf and India and so forth and so on. Suez Canal to be kept, Suez for Palestine now. Now people have often argued this was a trick, this is perfidious Albion again. You know, we refer to the United Nations, the United Nations will not give up Palestine, uh, will not uh, make any uh, definite decision regarding Palestine, therefore we can come back, as it were, through the back door of the United Nations. I think this is nonsense. The British wanted to leave Palestine. Too much of a burden. 
And here again this fits in with events that were taking place in a wider sphere. The Truman Doctrine, for example, March 1947, when the Americans said, coming out of isolation, yes, we will take responsibility for Greece, which again was a big British burden. Troops, a lot of money invested in Greece and Turkey. And this would relieve the pressure on the British government and make it easier for them. You also have to take into account uh, the economic social position in Britain at the time. Britain was bankrupt as a result of the Second World War, totally reliant upon American aid. The winter of 1947 was probably the worst winter in recorded British history, probably until the events of the last few weeks. Floods, snowstorms, great unemployment, factories working a few hours a week, energy crisis. One gentleman, as I am, is Buffy Dugdale, Balfour's niece, records in her diaries, ten plagues have hit Britain. Could the reason be the same? Could I utter it? And she did. Let my people go. Such was the condition of Britain from an economic, social point of view. And all these things come together in order to convince the British government that the time has come to leave Palestine. Then we come to the idea of partition again. And the idea of partition gradually takes hold within the British cabinet itself. Leap not uh, Clement Attlee, although Bevin was inclined towards partition. Of course, they would have preferred a unitary state, but they would accept partition as the best out of a series of bad alternatives, just like in India. In the cabinet itself, we have leading labor politicians now moving towards partition. We have high commissions in Palestine saying, yes, there's no alternative. We have leading British generals who are active in the Middle East saying, yes, we have to go towards so the movement towards partition was building up slowly. And all depended upon what the United Nations would decide. The United Nations sent a committee called UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, in order to investigate and see what was going on and to recommend something towards uh, something for the United Nations side of it. But here again we see the, Brit, Brit, the Brits not quite reading the political situation. And in May 1947, Andrei Gromyko, the Soviet ambassador to the United Nations, makes an absolutely extraordinary speech. Well, the Soviet Union traditionally was anti-Zionist. You know, the Zionist movement, kind of bourgeois, cosmopolitan affair. And now Gromyko is speaking like a born-again Zionist. Yes, partition. Yes to a Jewish state. Now, the British never realized, they never understood that within the framework of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union could work together. Well, not work together, but could move in the same direction. And once this happened, once both were agreed about partition, it was almost inevitable that should UNSCOT recommend partition, it would be passed by the United Nations. Now, you can ask, why didn't the British see this? It was so obvious. 
It wasn't the first time Gromyko made a speech of this kind. He did it again just before the United Nations decided on partition in November 1947. I have no explanation for this, except overconfidence, a kind of arrogance on the part of the British Foreign Office that, that refused to believe that its version, its interpretation of events was the right one. But the truth of the matter is that the Soviet Union and the United States were moving in the same direction towards partition. And this made partition, once it came before the United Nations, virtually certain, as it happened, as actually happened. Once partition was agreed upon, 29th of November 1947, a kind of civil war broke out in Palestine between the Jews and the Arabs, with the British trying to hold the ring, but most ineffectually. I don't want to go into the details of the civil war, what happened. I can do if anyone wants to ask questions. I want to concentrate on the British attitude. But the British administration in Palestine had in effect collapsed. The High Commissioner, a man called Alan Cunningham, and British officers were, were saying we simply, because it was the mandatory power's responsibility to keep law and order in Palestine. I and mean, this was the, the, the ABC of, of, of government. And they were telling the colonial office and the foreign office we do not have enough power. We do not have enough force in order to stop these two warring groups. We just can't do it. All we have to do now is to make sure that our lines of escape are free so that we can evacuate British forces as effortlessly and as free of uh, victims as possible. This was a, a shocking administration of bankruptcy. The Civil War went um, initially in the Arabs' favor, eventually in the Jews, mainly because, and I want to quote here from the diaries of an Arab intellectual and diarist. It's one of the few Arab sources we have. And he lived in a very well-to-do area of Jerusalem, Katamon. And he wrote this two or three days before he took his family to Cairo. <clears throat> I quote from the diary. Dear God, I don't know how we will hold out against the Jews' aggression. They're well-trained, organized, united, and armed with the latest weapons, all lacking on our side. When will we grasp that unity triumphs over disunity, that organization prevails over anarchy, preparedness, over neglect. And I think in these words, Khalil um, al-Sakakini, the, the name of this man, really got to the root of the, Arab pro the Palestinian Arab problem in 1948. And I think perhaps one could go kind of leap forward 60 years and say that we're facing virtually the same problem today. This was certainly a secret of the Jews' success. They also were very adept in arms smuggling and in making sure that their forces were well armed and well prepared and 
Here I tell a very amusing story, I think, which is not um, very well known. The, the Jewish arms smuggling um, really took place in the United States, where as a result of the Second World War, there were vast reserves of army surplus equipment. And <clears throat> the whole thing was organized by a man called Teddy Kolek, who was later six times mayor of Jerusalem. And he operated from a place called the Hotel 14, um, which um, was just above a very famous nightclub called the Copacabana, which allegedly was run by the Mafia. Now, uh, Kolik had uh, various contacts, um, particularly with the Jewish-Italian Mafia in New York, uh, who ran the New York waterfront. And in order to make sure, ensure that uh, the arms shipments reach Palestine eventually, they had to control the waterfront. And so Kolek uh, contacted a man called Miralansky, who was a Jewish a gangster, who was friendly with the Italian mafia, a man called uh, one of the heads of the five families, a man called uh, <coughs> Albert Mad Hatter Anastasia, who controlled the New York waterfront. And they made sure that shipments going to Palestine actually left the New York waterfront. Shipments going to the Arabs were either pushed overboard or else redirected to Jewish sources. There was also the question of paying off captains of ships. They had to be bribed, literally. Now, Kolek tells this story that he was in, he had to, he had to transfer $3 million to the captain of the ship that was taking an arms shipment to Palestine. He didn't know how to get to the cap because uh, what he was doing was violating a United States arms embargo. And he knew the federal authorities were watching Hotel 14. And he knew the moment he walked out of the door with $3 million in his bag, then the feds would latch onto him and the whole thing would go down the tubes. He goes down to the Copacabana and he meets Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra is pro-Zionist, sympathetic towards the Zionist cause. And Collar tells Sinatra the story. So don't worry. Give me the money. You go out the front door. The feds will follow you. I'll go out the back door. I'll take the money to the ship's captain and everything will be okay. And that's exactly what happened. And it's in these kind of nefarious, one might say underhand ways, that the Haganah ensured that sufficient arms shipments uh, came to Palestine. Let me end by quoting you the words of the last High Commissioner in Palestine, a man called Sir Henry Gurney. And he compares the British position in Palestine during the last days of the mandate to a Greek tragedy. <clears throat> the chorus. The chorus are the British delegates to the United Nations. Chorus. We are going on May the 15th. On May the 15th, we are going. That's the date of the end of the mandate. Interruptions. Moshe Shertok, who was the head of the political department of the Jewish Agency. We are prepared to agree to anything, provided that it includes partition, immigration, and a Jewish state. Jamal al-Husseini, who was leading the Arab delegation. We are prepared to agree to anything that does not include partition, Jewish immigration, 
and a Jewish state. Senator W. Austin, the American ambassador, all I suggest is something that commits nobody to anything at all. Truman offstage, I am still backing partition. Chorus, if you haven't heard us properly, let us say again that we are leaving on the 15th of May. We have kept these people from each other's throats for the last 25 years. And if anyone else is prepared to do it, let him say so now and do something about it. Only don't say we haven't warned you. If there is a vacuum, it's not our fault but yours. Because you have assumed responsibility for Palestine from the 15th of May. This is a thoroughly wicked child, though we brought it up as well we could. And it was really very nice of you to take it over. It is rather urgent, because the child is getting more and more out of hand, and we are finding it almost impossible to look after it properly. Cutting it in half may well be the best thing that could happen to it, but we warn you that it wasn't likely to agree. This is the 15th of May. We're off. Thank you. Can you hear me? Right. right. If, you, if you want to leave, leave now, do, but we're going to have about, um, we've got about a quarter of an hour now for questions and answer and discussion. I can see hands going up already, so I don't think I'll need to ask a question myself, though I may do one at the very end. Um, I think the gentleman here first, and then there was a question over here. So do you, would you like to lead off? Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you, Professor Rose. Um, mine's a very basic question from someone who's not at all knowledgeable on the subject. Um, what was the alternative to partition that the British may have considered, or the UN may have considered, um, in 1947-48? Well, there, sorry. Uh, there were two alternatives, either to preserve a unitary state, a one-state, right in, in modern-day terminology, a one-state solution, or if that proved to be impossible, a two-state solution. I mean, those were basically the two alternatives. Uh, what, they, what the British had to decide, what, he couldn't continue this indefinitely, so it had to um, have a, a definite date when it could decide one or the other and right up until the discussions in the United Nations it was still favoring a one state solution even though everything was going against it so one has to ask you know what were they doing didn't they really understand what was going on and the only uh, logical answer is that they didn't understand what was going on they were not reading the political map at the time then there was a question here, I think, from this gentleman here. And then I can see a question over there. Okay, one here. Uh, I was wondering about the uh, relative sizes of populations at the time of partition. Mm. Um, this is a week in which in England, in Britain, uh, it's been announced that about 10% of the population were not born in England, which is controversial <laughs> at this time. And so one wonders uh, what the proportion of the two 
groups was in Palestine, yeah. and whether that uh, was borne in mind, and how it affected the, the borders and the proportion of land. Yeah. Um, in, um, this country, in this country, for example, if somebody suggested that we had problems with that minority that was <coughs> not born in this country, and somebody suggested that we should have partition from, the, say, the seven to the wash, uh, is that the position some resident of Palestine might have had at the time? Well, I would <coughs> hesitate to propose anything to the present British government. I mean, they can. In, in Palestine, 1947-48, there were about 450,000 Jews and almost a million Palestinians. Um, <clears throat> the over, overwhelming, well, I don't say overwhelming, at least half of the Jews were immigrants and half were born in the country. Uh, it should also be remembered, by the way, that there was Arab immigration into Palestine during the mandatory period, mainly through Syria. We don't have exact figures for that, but uh, the, 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 the proportion is roughly 450,000 to a million. Yeah, approximately a million. Yeah. Okay, I think there was a question here first, and then here, and then two, in the front, two bed in front. Oh, yeah. uh, you mentioned, or people mentioned, about the uh, role of British government in Balfour Declaration for Fidesz Army. The role of what? Sorry. Uh, of the British government yes. in giving away the land belonging to Arabs yes. to a foreign people. But the, if you look at uh, even now till today, the failure of the British government to Nazi-like attitude of Israel to bomb Gaza, they have never raised a voice and even supplying arms to Israel. Now that has been the colonial history in India and Pakistan and intrinsically, you see the Arab uh, are hated by, uh, by British. They are inimical to Islam as journalists. If you look at the history of the writings of the Christian Dante and other people, you will realize that there is a basic hatred, insane hatred of Islam. Well, <clears throat> what exactly is the question? The question is the Pashidi is still existing. If, if we're talking about the Balfour Declaration, I don't believe at all. I don't believe at all. If, if one examines <coughs> the documents, if one examines cabinet minutes, uh, diaries, letters, whatever, uh, I, don't th I, don't, I don't see these figures at all. Um, I think that at the time, the British were genuinely, genuinely believed they could, believe they could bring these two peoples together in some kind of compromise, something I didn't mention perhaps in the lecture, was they actively encouraged a meeting between Weizmann, the Zionist leader, and Faisal, <clears throat> the Arab nationalist leader, 
at a place just north of Aqaba in the spring of 1918, and this meeting was formalized. Um, I, I hesitate to call it a pact, but certainly a letter in which um, both sides uh, agreed to political and economic cooperation, and the Jewish National Home was included into this. Now, this broke down uh, because of the imperial interests of Britain and France that clashed, as I said, with Faisal, who proclaimed this greater Arab state, and the French marched on Faisal and simply expelled him. But I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, it's always easy to um, look for conspiracy theories in history because they explain everything, but in the long run, they explain nothing at all. Even in late 50s and 60s? I'm not, the yes, but... I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't approve of these terms, Nazi, and, and so forth and so on, and um, just let's leave it at that, okay? Okay, there's a question, question here, I think first you have the first question. I just wondered uh, what is the um, future now? <laughs> um, it, I mean, surely there has to be a recognition, there has to be a compromise, and that must come from both sides. Yeah. Um, what uh, if the Americans are going to be behind this as well? Then uh, is there a, a solution? Um. <coughs> My own view is that there can only be a two-state two solution. It will have to be partitioned. I'm not sure where the borders will be. I don't know. I think at present it mainly depends on the Americans. Um, and if uh, Obama is, uh, is genuine in his promise to pursue aggressively uh, a peace policy in the Middle East which will be based on a two-state solution, then I think there's a very good chance of it coming about. I, can, I can't say when. As I say, I can't say on what borders it will be based. But uh, I agree with you, you know, this is the only, for me, the only reasonable uh, solution that can come. Uh, I think I'm going to collect some questions now because I can see lots of hands going up in different parts of the room. Um, so I think first there are two, there was a two young here and here in the front row. Then I saw some questions on that side and then some on that side. So we'll collect about four or five, yeah? And do you want to a pen? Yeah, no, I've got yeah, okay. it. Right. Okay, so, so um, you first, yeah. Okay, um, just going to the, the basis of the talk about the British input into the, uh, into the, into the Palestinian question. You mentioned um, some notable figures, Churchill, Attlee, Lloyd George, being Gentile Zionists. Now, my question is, what was, the motiv what was their motivation not being Jewish? Yeah. in supporting okay. the Zionist cause, considering that if we accept that it's not unreasonable to have a, to, to, to desire a home for the Jews, especially in light of the circumstances of the Second World War and persecution in Eastern Europe. But it's also, the two other factors being, against that being, first of all, it is, in order to do so in Palestine would require the displacement and removal, essentially, of the local indigenous population. Mm. And secondly, the fact that by doing so, you're Yeah. 
side, and then we'll go to that side. As I understood you, uh, you indicated that Balfour was a pro-Zionist. I'm over here. Sorry? Oh, okay. As I understood you saying that uh, Balfour was a pro-Zionist. Yes. Um, some of the things that I've read would ind indicated that he was actually perhaps anti-Semitic and that his promotion of the declaration had other purposes in it. Yes. Uh, would you discuss, please? Yeah. Okay. okay. Good. And then here, yes. And question here, and then further back. Um, you commented on the excessive Jewish demands that Arabs viewed them as such. As Sorry, such. Um, you commented earlier on the excessive Jewish demands that uh, Arabs viewed them as such, as such in the 1880s and 90s. Uh, and you said also the Arabs were against the Ottomans uh, in that period. Could you elaborate on that? Because in the 1880s and 90s you mentioned that the Arabs viewed uh, the second wave of uh, migration as excessive Jewish demands and they viewed that um, the Arabs were essentially against the Ottomans as well, so I wasn't clear wh why that was. That's about the if objectives of the Arab nationalist movement before in the 1880s and 1890s, okay. really, during the second wave of Jewish immigration. Yes. Hi. Um, I came in a couple of minutes late, so maybe I missed the first, uh, um, a little bit of the f uh, initial history. But uh, there was a question about the proportion of the populations upon uh, the partition in 47. I'm curious if any other numbers exist uh, from earlier periods. So for example, I heard that uh, the, some sort of a census of Jerusalem back in 1880 actually found that uh, plurality of Jerusalem was Jewish. Um, so I'm, I wonder if there's any other kind of uh, demographic information that you have on the proportion of the those respective population, Jewish and uh, Arab. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, and then over this side, I saw two or three hands. So um, there's two in the front row and then one there and one at the back. Okay, we're collecting quite a lot of questions, but I think it's the best way to do it. Can you deal with the front row first? Thank you. This is a very simple question. By all means, ignore it completely. I know very little about this. Um, I was just wondering how, how it worked when uh, Jews immigrated and bought land. Who are they buying it from? And I know nothing about that. I'm just quite interested as a, a man off the street. Hi. Um, what turned the Russians from anti-Zionists into pro-Zionists, and how significant was Gromyko's speech in creating Israel in the future? And then at the back, I think there's gentlemen. Okay, gentlemen here with a pullover. Then one with a tie, and then one right at the back. And then we ought to stop, I think, and give Professor Rose a chance to answer. Thank you. My name Sorry. is Robert Lever. I'm yeah, an economist. One. The question is dual, I think, but one clarification. The distribution of population in 1918 was about 15% Jewish, 85% Arab. Yeah. So the, the, there is quite good data on that. Yes. The second point is... Concerning the establishment of a two-state okay. arrangement, yes. would the difficulties, obviously, would Israel be willing to give up land to make Palestine a viable state? Okay. And obviously that is a very difficult situation to, to overcome. Thank you. And did, sorry, but did you have one quick more point? Yeah. You think the British government ever regretted coming to the Balfour Accord? 
Did they what? Sorry. Did the British ever if the British the government ever regretted <laughs> coming to the Balfour Accord? Thank you. I'm not sure how you're going to answer all these questions in five minutes, but my, my, my quick question is, um, Who is this? you mentioned Britain was bankrupt at the end of the Second World War. You mentioned that the Cold War was emerging where Britain was a peripheral player relative to the US and the Soviet Union. India, you touched on India. India was the jewel in the crown you know, of, the, of the empire. Do you think within the Br British strategic thinking, the realization that India was, and you touched on this, that basically they couldn't hold on to it, was the, f the final nudge that said, you know what, we're out of Palestine because of the strategic significance for the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea? Yeah. Yeah, I think this would better be the la really better be the last question. I'm sorry, but you can, and there may be a chance to speak to the, talk to Professor Rose afterwards. Yeah. Um, would you care to speculate about how successful the greater Arab kingdom would have been assuming it had allowed, it had been allowed to stay, that the French hadn't evicted, um, what's his name, <laughs> from Damascus, Faisal, sorry. Do you think it would have, you know, had much strength to last or would have it broken up into competing states or, it's a bit of speculation really, but if you would care to, that would be great. Okay, it's a whole range of questions there, but I think quite a lot were about demographics, weren't they? Yeah, I want, quite I want, a lot about Gentile Zionism too. Yes, and what finally made the British leave? Um, <clears throat> the Gentile Zionism. I, I think I, I mentioned that it, its origins were really <clears throat> in the mid 17th century, the Puritan revolutions, and we see lots of uh, pamphlets. I mean, this was purely religious. Um, that the return of the Jews to Palestine was a necessary condition for the millennium. And this is time and time again um, reintroduced uh, during this period. And <clears throat> we have people in the 19th century like Lord Shaftesbury who generally felt that the Jews had been, so that there was a, a, a strong religious element, who generally felt that the Jews had been persecuted, uh, had no real land of their own, and that in order to resolve this kind of question, uh, they needed a homeland. This is also expressed in, in, in a literary tradition in England. George Eliot and Daniel Deronda, I don't know if, you, if you've read the book, this, this is a firmly pro-Zionist uh, novel of a, of a man, Daniel Deronda, who finds his origins as a Jew and seeks his future in Palestine. So there's a strong religious element. There's another element, Lloyd George, Welsh, you know, small nation uh, under the heel of the British, the English, perhaps struggling for independence, maybe. An affinity with Weitzel, very great friends. Somebody mentioned Balfour as an anti-Semite, yes. Um, this, is, this actually is a very kind of leading question because <clears throat> um, a feeling of, of kind of genteel anti-Semitism permeated the British upper classes. Um, I did a book on, on Harold Nicholson, who's quite a well-known political and literary figure, and you read his diaries, you're astonished. You know, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. But he was pro-Zionist. 
Now Balfour, for example, when the Russian Revolution came, 1917, he thought this was a Jewish-inspired plot. Balfour was also a philosopher, not only a politician, and he genuinely believed, again, that the Jew, as he said, he told the House of Lords, this is a, a, how can I put it, a kind of a, a race that has contributed more to Western civilization than any other. Like, you know, he might have been exaggerating, but this is what he genuinely believed. And as a result, he felt it needed a homeland of their own. So these things are not mutually contradictory. <clears throat> Population figures. Um, the f I mean, we don't have um, we don't have accurate population figures uh, during the time of the Ottoman Empire, or even until the end of the First World War. The first real consensus, uh, sen sorry, census of uh, Palestine's population was 1922, and that gentleman mentioned it and entirely accurate. 85,000 Jews. I can't remember exactly how many Arabs, but about 15% to 85%. I, I was referring to population figures uh, in 1947-48 where they changed dramatically uh, immigration and so forth and so on. How did the Jews acquire land? Well, they bought it, mainly from absentee Arab landlords. The most um, significant uh, acquisition of um, land was what's known as the Vale of Esdralon, very fertile uh, area of land south of, uh, of Haifa again bought from Arab absentee landlords and they were only too willing to sell now you may say this is a betrayal of Arab national interests okay but that's what they did and the Jews were very adept at raising money in order to buy this land they had they instituted a special fund the Jewish National Fund uh, in which Jews all over the world contributed their pennies or their cents or whatever. And it was with this money mainly that they managed to acquire land. I think we've, we've actually held Professor Rose for a very long time already. I know we have to vacate the room and it's already gone past eight o'clock. Um, there are copies of the book available outside and um, if you want to continue the discussion, there should be an opportunity to ask more questions because I know some people didn't have the chance um, so I think we ought to stop the session now, but this has been a, a really good meeting and it's really <laughs> attentive.